Live from Naples, this is the Morning Break with Jane Ritter. Morning everyone, a lovely sunny day in Naples. I think the rain has finally stopped. This morning I have a very well-known ELT author, Mark Hancock. We'll be talking about teaching and pronunciation in particular. Live from Naples, this is The Morning Break with Jay Ritter on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. So as I said this morning, I have a very important guest who will be joining us very soon. Thinking about teaching pronunciation, how often do you incorporate it into your teaching? What activities do you do? And if you're like me, do you shy away from it? Um, do you shy away from it as um, as I, I do? Um, because I'm Australian and I'm a bit worried about my intonation, my my pronunciation in general. How how do you feel about it? Feel free to to join us, and if you have any questions, um, please please uh, do share them with us on the chat or phoning in. Let me tell you a little bit about my guest. Um, as I said, he's a very well-known ELT author and teacher trainer with over 30 years experience in the field. He's taught in Sudan, Brazil, Spain, and the UK. And I still remember the day when pronunciation games landed in our staff room and we all, um, we all devoured it. Um, Mark, I've sent you an invite. Please let me know if you can accept it and join. I can't see you as a guest. Um, anyway, we'll, we'll I'll keep going. I'll tell you a little bit more about him. Obviously, his books include Pronunciation Games, English Pronunciation in Use, and his 50 Tips for Teaching Pronunciation. Um, they're all by CUP. Um, he also has a self-published PronPAC series, uh, including PronPAC Connected Speech for Listeners. He works as a trainer online and um, on the MATSOL program at the University of Chester. He's a key, he's keen on creating art and music and walking in the mountains. Now, I can't seem Mark, let's try again. I've sent another invitation, please accept it. <laughs> Okay, um, Mark, are you there? No. Um, let's try a little bit. What I think I'll do is I'll just go for a quick break, a, a quick advertisement break. This program has been brought to you by The Happy Confident Company. 
our clinically approved, ready-to-go wellbeing and mental health programme will help your pupils thrive. In only 10 minutes a day, you'll be able to deliver social and emotional learning and wellbeing tools throughout your school. To find out more, visit us at www.happyconfident.com. And good morning. How are you? I'm <laughs> very well, thank you. <laughs> lovely to have you here. I'm sorry about the, the tech difficulties at the start, um, but it's wonderful to have you here. Um, Mark, not everybody knows very, a lot about you. Um, and I've, I've seen, I know that you've worked in many, many countries. Um, could you just tell us a little bit about your your teaching journey? Um, well, I started teaching straight after university by going to Sudan um, for one year. It was um, more or less voluntary work and I hadn't got any, any qualification for teaching. So um, I didn't think I was worth much. <laughs> but uh, when I came back from there, I, uh, I, I got a qualification, my first qualification and started teaching in uh, Turkey wow. for two years and then moved on to Brazil four years. Each place seemed to be uh, twice as long as the previous place. That seems to be the pattern. <laughs> and then I ended up in Madrid for a long, long time, more than 20 years. Wow. Uh, currently in the UK again, um, in Chester. So in all of that time, I've been like uh, teaching all age groups, all kinds of different scenarios. Um, also nowadays, a lot of teacher training and writing books as well. I, I know quite a lot of your work and um, enjoy it very, very much. Um, you, you have a, a very, very strong interest in teaching pronunciation along with other areas of teacher training, um, but people kind of know you as the pronunciation guru. <laughs> what prompted your interest in that particular area of ELT? It's uh, strange, isn't it? Because I um I stumbled into it uh, almost by accident. Uh, I was doing some admin hours at the Cultural Inglesa in in Rio, Brazil, and they they asked me to use these admin hours to um, make some pronunciation material for their their chain of schools. Um, so that was my first interest in pronunciation. I didn't really know much about it before that. But you know how it goes when you sometimes your interest comes from doing something and mm. I got more and more interested in it and by the end of creating these materials somebody suggested I should uh, try to get them published <laughs> uh, which eventually became pronunciation games which what? you mentioned earlier on. <laughs> yeah I, 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 um, I, I use I actually used a maze yesterday um, with a um with a business client, it was quite, and he was, I love that. <laughs> um, you use you do use a lot of mazes. Is there any particular reason for that? Um, well, if I could just explain what a maze is, a maze mm. is uh, where you're going from point A to point B, and you can go. You have to find a route um, through through the uh, through the maze uh, through the passageways. But you can only go through 
in, in the case of these pronunciation mazes, you can only go through a passageway if the, the word in that, in that passageway has a certain feature, mm. for example, a, a certain um, vowel sound or, or whatever. Um, or at any point, yeah, or stress pattern. pattern at yeah. any point in the maze, you're going to be faced with some choices. Do I go left or right or, or what? And uh, the choices are what's the important point here. You, you've, got, um, you've got to think about which way to go. You, you, you're looking at the various options and you're thinking, well, which one of these words has the, the feature I'm looking for? And that's what you're after. You're trying to encourage the, the learner to uh, put some thought into the matter and, uh, and decide which way to go in a way which is also motivating as well mm. in its own right because you've got the big the big thing which is trying to get from a to b um a, a big objective which sort of so it's much more interesting in my view than simply a list of items one one to ten and you have to underline the word that has the given sound that seems to me to be um it is quite common practice in boring <laughs> in, te in 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 course books though that is one of the main activities isn't it listen and underline or or highlight the stress um yes it is <laughs> <laughs> yeah no mazes are, are are truly truly in engaging um you have <laughs> sorry you have a huge selection of pronunciation tips um and i hope to extract a few from you as we're talking today um when you began oops maybe sort of 10 years ago um what were your top five pronunciation tips uh, i don't know that's a tricky question because mm. i don't uh i don't usually think in terms of favorite things but um let me put it this way um, i I recently wrote a book called 50 Tips for Teaching Pronunciation. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's where you're getting the idea from the question. Yeah. Maybe the idea that I love tips. <laughs> um, it's, uh, it was uh, for a series that was being edited by uh, Scott Thornbury, and all of the authors were having to submit uh, a number of tips, mm. 101 tips for this or 50 tips for that. So I organised all the things I wanted to say about pronunciation in the format of uh, these tips. Uh, and I organized them into three types according to the big questions about teaching pronunciation. The big questions are what, how, and why? Mm. What are you teaching? How are you going to teach it? And why are you teaching it? I organized it in that fashion. Now, as to, coming back to your question about how I might have changed in, in what tips I like, uh, I think it's the third category there, the why tips. Mm. These, these are the ones that I sort of neglected for the first um, two thirds of my career. Because um, back in the day, we didn't really ask the question why. When I started on pronunciation stuff, mm. it was all, okay, these are the things you have to deal with sounds, stress, intonation, and here's how you deal with them. Um, drills, games, and whatever, different methodologies. But nobody was talking about why. What pronunciation do the students need and why do they need it? 
so I think that's where I, my approach has changed really, that I've started to, to regard why as being a fundamental question. That's why I put that question at the beginning of those 50 tips. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. <laughs> so why is it important to teach pronunciation in your view? Well, <laughs> well it's about um, access, really. Uh, it's uh, to enable, to give your students access to a global speech community where the lingua franca is English. I think that's what most students probably need. Uh, so when you think of it this way, that, that kind of goes away from what, what a lot of people think pronunciation is about. A lot of people seem to think pronunciation is about copy or sounding like somebody else. Mm. Like, for example, for example, the Queen, uh, the late <laughs> Queen. Um, I just give that as an example. Mm -hmm. uh, it's about sounding like somebody from England or somebody from the United States. A lot of people think that's the whole purpose. It's about mimicking somebody else. And I think that uh, that really doesn't cut it because what do, why do people why would people want that? Very few of them are going to be going to live in Buckingham Palace or, or United States. Most of them uh, are going to want to use English to communicate with other people, probably also not from those places. Uh, this is something that uh, Jennifer Jenkins um, made very well known, this idea of English as a lingua franca with her book in, in the year 2000. Um, and I think uh, that's probably a turning point for uh, many of us in the field of pronunciation teaching. Wow. So I'm still going to extract some tips. What are the best ways to incorporate pronunciation activities in class? What advice yeah. would you give? Okay, well, you, you, you're using the word incorporate, um, which is interesting because it is a big problem incorporating pronunciation into your course because it doesn't usually fit nicely with anything. Let's, let's say you wanted to focus on uh, the, the pair of sounds in ship and sheep. Um, let's say you wanted to do that. Mm -hmm. How does that fit with anything else in the course? It's not like the, the vocabulary is going to sit nicely with a vocabulary set you're working on. It doesn't fit with any grammar. Mm. It, it, how are you going to slot that into the syllabus? That's, that's problematic. I have to say it's problematic. So if you want to, to incorporate pronunciation into your course, you really have to look for opportunities. Yeah. Uh, here's one, here's an opportunity. Take, uh, take the sentences that you've got. Let's say you're doing a grammar lesson out of your course mm. book, and it has um, a number of sentences which have the target grammar point in. Uh, course books often begin with maybe a text and then they go through some questions and then some grammar activities. And then right at the end, there might be a small uh, pronunciation thing. Mm. Uh, how, about, how about flipping the whole order of things and starting with pronunciation? If, for example, 
just that the activity begins with a text, as many do. You could have, you could use that text. You could mine it for pronunciation points uh, before you ever start talking about the grammar or the mm. vocabulary. You could really uh, go into the pronunciation so that the thing becomes a live piece of language long before you start trying to analyze it. I think that's the thing about pronunciation. It brings language to life. It embodies it. <laughs> uh, and so why not use that uh, to, to, to make it alive for the students instead of leaving it, leaving pronunciation to a, an afterthought that gets uh, missed off because you run out of time? It, yeah, I, I'm working on CELTAs. You do you do see that happen an awful lot. Um, yeah. They don't. That that's kind of the last thing to deal with. But actually, in terms of communicative competence, it's probably one of the more important um, things <laughs> to focus on. If that makes sense. It's certainly motivating. I find. I yeah. I I when I. I, I obviously, as I as I um, mentioned to you, I shy away from focusing on pronunciation. For example, intonation. Being Australian, it doesn't often <laughs> doesn't often sit uh, with your standard course books uh, or recordings. Um, it it just doesn't kind of work for me. Um, but um, now I've lost my train of thought. Um, I. I when I do use it. Uh, can I come in there? Yeah, 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 yeah. Please. No, you, you mentioned being Australian as if it were problematic. Uh, and uh, okay, the example of intonation is, is, uh, is really good because obviously intonation is not universal in, in English. Mm. So that's why intonation is so tricky. To, one of the reasons why it's so tricky to teach is that uh, you, you uh, look to find a rule and you find, oh, the rule works nicely for England, but it doesn't work. So it doesn't work in Australia. So, uh, and then you, you have to ask yourself, well, if it doesn't work, if it only works in one place, but not in another, why are we teaching it? Mm. Um, and uh, I know, coming back to Jennifer Jenkins again, I noticed that she said, well, you shouldn't teach intonation. It's, uh, it's useless and it's, uh, and it's unteachable, she said. Um, and I can see a little bit what she means there. Um, and I think the reason being that it, it, it's, not, it's not universal across accents. I, I, I appreciate your, your problem with that. I have the same problem myself. I, I mean, I, just, I have a, a colleague at uni and she's Indian English and her intonation is completely different. <laughs> we have um, conversations, but we're still, we still understand each other. Um. <laughs> yeah. Well, I noticed one of your activities that you wrote about uh, in the blog for Cambridge. You, you, you said, uh, why not just have a single word and get the students to say it as if they're surprised mm. or, as, or as if they're asking a question or making a statement. Um, that kind of uh, approach, I think, is, is, is probably the best thing you can do with intonation. Yeah, I, I mean, there is obviously good grounds for focusing on it in lessons because we don't want our students to come across as, as rude or <laughs> um, grumpy when they're... Um, 
<laughs> Sorry, there was a, a little freeze there, but we're back. Okay. Uh, this thing about uh, rude, yes, I, I think um, intonation, if, if you can think of the um, intonation as two things, one, the ups and downs business. The other thing is where you put the emphasis in sentences. And that, I think, is really important. Mm. And uh, uh, one of the problems that people uh, have is not placing the emphasis in a way that matches what they're trying to say. If you put the emphasis in the wrong place, the listener is going to search for a meaning that you didn't intend. Mm. Uh, and that's that's really uh, damaging to, uh, to your intelligibility. So I, I think it's really important to work on that aspect of intonation. Sometimes it's called sentence stress, sometimes tonic stress. Um, but uh, very important, I think. Wonderful, wonderful. Where, um, if it's okay with you, I'm, we're just going to take a quick break uh, for the news, and then we will be right back with some more questions. This program has been brought to you by the Happy Confident Company. Our clinically approved, ready-to-go wellbeing and mental health program will help your pupils thrive. In only 10 minutes a day, you'll be able to deliver social and emotional learning and well-being tools throughout your school. To find out more, visit us at www.happyconfident.com. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The BBC features a story on the lack of guidance for teachers and schools on the issue of how to support transgender pupils. The article on the news website highlights the fact that the government first promised guidance for schools in relation to transgender more than five years ago, but the Department for Education is only due to publish this term. The piece has been written by the LGBT correspondent and the LGBT producer and it outlines the difficulty they have had finding schools who are willing to talk about transgender policies, describing it as almost impossible. They say the BBC contacted head teachers across England, but almost all were too anxious to be interviewed on camera, unwilling to draw attention to their schools or pupils who identify as trans or non-binary. Most head teachers who did respond to questions said that without guidance, schools were left to make their own decisions with some saying this left them in a no-win situation and fearing that whatever they did, they would be criticised or even vilified. One head teacher did say that the schools wanted guidance and advice to help ensure they were making decisions in the best interests of the child. The article also referenced survey tool Teacher Tap, which had asked almost 7,000 teachers about their experiences of supporting transgender pupils. About 8% of primary school teachers said they taught trans or non-binary pupils, compared to 75% of teachers in secondary. Just over half said they were not very or not at all confident about next steps to take if a child said they wanted to change their name, pronouns or aspects of their appearance. The guidance is expected to address these issues, as well as the issue of how to involve parents if a child wishes to identify as a gender different to their birth sex and what to do if a parent disagrees. When BBC News spoke to parents, it was also difficult to find a view everyone agrees with, 
and parents were also reluctant to speak on record. Some told the BBC they did not want any decisions made without their approval, but others wanted schools to put their child's choices first. It is expected that the Department for Education will publish a draft for consultation prior to final guidance being issued, perhaps highlighting how sensitive the issue is. It is likely the guidance will cover legal obligations for single-sex schools and whether schools should inform parents if their child is questioning their gender. It may offer advice on residential trips and single-sex sports. The DfE has said that the overriding principle would be that the well-being and safeguarding of children was paramount. After last week's online storm over the key stage 2 SATS reading paper, the content of the test has finally been published. It has been reported across media outlets that children had been in tears, some staff had to really think about the answers and parents were annoyed at the stress pupils faced whilst the DfE said the SATS papers were rigorously trialled. The main concerns were over the test's complexity and length, although this spread into debate about the purpose of SATS overall. Details of the test can be found on the Standards and Testing Agency website. In Wales, a plan for a million Welsh speakers by 2050 is said to be likely to fail without a substantial increase in teachers speaking the language. This is according to a Welsh Government report which focuses on the drop in the number of Welsh speakers since their census in 2011. The 2021 census also found a decrease in the number of children and young people able to speak the language. The Welsh Government funds training programmes for those who want to learn or improve their Welsh, who are teachers in schools in Wales. Finally, the BBC covers a story on words and phrases the public would like to see banned. It followed a tweet by Countdown Susie Dent in which she asked which words people would like to see banished from the dictionary. Top of the list was the phrase going forward, followed by the other phrase no disrespect but. The word like when used as a filler word and the expression I'm not going to lie. The list also featured my personal bugbear, sentences that begin with so. Dent used it as an opportunity to explore aspects of the English language and how some phrases which seem modern have actually been around for a long time. Details of the full top 10 are available on the BBC News website. So, going forward, I'm not going to lie, this has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm considering how easy it is to get distracted when researching on the internet. I'm putting myself in the shoes of a young person and I've set myself a task of writing a report on the greatest invention of all time. I'm also not going to use ChatGPT. So, my first online search shows a lot of people claim the wheel is the greatest invention. And let's face it, there are a lot of them around. There are 9 million bicycles in Beijing. And that's a fact. That's 18 million wheels just on bikes in one city, if we assume nobody has a tricycle. This led me to want to know how many bicycles there are in the world. The answer I found was an estimated 1 billion. That's 2 billion wheels, again assuming nobody has a tricycle. Now I want to know how many wheels are there in the world. Another search tells me there's an estimated 37 billion, 24 of these billion being toys, and the next biggest share of 8.4 billion being on cars. A quick scan of the results page poses an additional question I hadn't considered. Are there more doors or wheels in the world? Well, I simply have to know. In a few clicks, I find out it's estimated there are 48 billion doors in the world. So based on this research, there are more doors and isn't a door 
a great invention. Yet it's not been proposed as one in my prior searches. And if there are that many doors, how many hinges must there be? The amazing thing about the internet is that there's always an answer. And the way search engines deliver those answers are designed to keep you interested and active. So potentially you see more ads and make them more money, which doesn't help get that report written, does it? Does your school teach young people how to research effectively? Do our young people realise how much they are advertised at? I'd love to hear your thoughts. As always, when I get in touch at TC Radio Official, I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. And we're back with Mark Hancock. Mark, um... I was reading, um, I think, one of your blogs, and you talked about the accent police. Who okay. are the accent police, and should I be frightened of them? Um, the accent police. The accent police are uh, people who have a, a rather pedantic view about accent that... Uh, this accent is the correct one and those accents are incorrect um, uh, and that if you're teaching you, you, sh you should be uh, teaching towards the correct one and, the, and you should be uh, trying to get rid of, of the incorrect ones. Uh, the accent police are intolerant of accent variation. They mm. think it's an aberration. And the worst thing about the accent police is that all of us have an element of accent police in our own heads. Uh, it's like some, sometimes we are our own worst enemy. Um, and what I mean by that is people who feel that their own accent isn't good enough. And mm. uh, they feel embarrassed by their own accent. Um, or in, in some way inferior. And this is really unfortunate. And I don't know, I, I, I wanted to try and convince people that they didn't need to feel embarrassed about their accents with that article that you're mentioning. Mm. It's, uh, you don't have to be the accent police. Uh, we, we, we should uh, regard accents as, nobody has no accent, start with that. Mm. <laughs> Sometimes, uh, especially in America, in American schools, you have this idea of accent reduction, as if you could reduce it, reduce it, reduce it, until there's no accent left. And that's uh, a strange view. There's no such thing as no accent. No. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I mean, even, I mean, it's the same in, in the UK. We have parts of Australia where people speak in a particular way and they speak in a slightly different way in in other states or towns or countries um you're never going to find <laughs> the same accent um as yeah. you travel uh but i think i i notice a lot of of non-native speakers uh often one of the first things they do is they apologize for their english or they apologize for their accent and then when they speak they're clear, <laughs> um, entertaining, comprehensible. Um, how can we kind of help people feel better about this? Uh, well, you certainly, uh, you can begin by not making a, 
a feature of it, as uh, as the accent police do, um, by not highlighting it as an aberration, mm. uh, by respond reacting to it with to their accent with perfect normality and uh, and uh, egalitarian. You, you could say, well, I say it this way, but you you can say it that way. That's fine. People will understand if you say it that way, rather than saying things like it's pronounced like this, or we say this, instead mm. of using phrases like we say, we, who are these we? <laughs> um, try to be uh, more um, humble. Mm-hmm. I, let me put it that way. Humble. Instead of responding to a student's um, contribution with, oh, uh, no, that's wrong. We say da-da-da-da. You say, oh, well, yeah, you could say it that way. I say it this way. Uh, if you say it that way, some people might understand you. Maybe try, da, 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 try to be a little bit more humble about it and egalitarian. I think, uh, and and remain aware at all times that uh, no accent is superior. Um, John Wells, the the phonetician, he he wrote once that uh, RP, the that standard British accent, is is standard not because of any intrinsic superiority there's nothing better about it it was just arbitrarily selected because the people that spoke that way happened to be the more powerful people it's got nothing to do with being more intelligible or or superior in any way so we should bear in mind that standard accents are not intrinsically better you mentioned um, you described IPA symbols as symbols of power. Is that is there a link? There is a link because um, I, I, in in the article you're referring to, I started by saying this: the IPA phonemic symbols are often used as symbols of power, whereas they should be symbols of empowerment. And what I was driving at was that a lot of people believe that the symbols represent a specific accent. Uh, such as RP, mm. received pronunciation. Um, I think uh, that's a confusion uh, because we have phonetic symbols which are exact sounds and, in, and those can indeed represent specific accents. They have that degree of uh, exactitude about them. But phonemic symbols, as we use them in English language teaching, they represent a system of distinctions, not specific sounds. So there are various ways that each symbol could be said. Uh, Take the the vowel in duck, D-U-C-K. It could be be pronounced duck, 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 duck in a variety of ways. And none of those, (laughs) yeah, plenty of people say it that way. None of those is superior to any other. it has a range of sounds that correspond to that. And if you, uh, if you use the symbols in this more um, flexible way, I think they can become empowering because it doesn't mean that if you don't speak that way yourself in the RP manner, it doesn't mean that you're in any way disqualified. What happens though when you've got a student and, and you, you talk about this 
a group of students who talk about this with them and then they just say well that's just confusing um <laughs> how they, they they see the teacher as a sort of expert uh and they want a, a clear answer <laughs> um well it's not yeah there's there's the answer there's the answer and then there's what they end up doing mm. they could you could give them a clear answer couldn't you but mm. in, at the end of the day they're going to say it the way they say it um, so the answer is irrelevant. So you could say, well, you can you can say to your student, speak like me if you like. You can do that. Mm -hmm. Fine. No problem. Uh, but I, I'm telling you that the way you say it is fine. And I, don't worry about it. Mm -hmm. if you want to, so if you want to try and copy me, be my guest. But be aware that the way you say it is, is perfectly uh, intelligible. And many people say it the way you say it. So... Uh, I, I don't know is that confusing <laughs> no it's not it's um yeah I mean it's going back to your idea of, of being very humble and um I think I think I'd like to be your student because you, you're very accommodating and and what you say makes complete sense yeah Whereas I think you have sort of very teacher-centered teacher that would have trouble Teachers like sometimes like class. to um, <laughs> like to wield a bit of power, and teachers, teachers, um, I, I myself have made the same mistake, so I shouldn't preach from too high. But teachers sometimes want to inflict upon their students everything that has been inflicted upon them. Um, so, you know, you you've gone through the the hard work of learning everything that there is to know about, for example phonology mm. and then you want to go into the classroom and make and do make sure that the students know everything that you do that they have to go through all of the pain that you went through um and i i think i think yeah, we need to be judicious you don't have to tell students everything you know mm. you don't have to convince them that you know, you're, you're a, an encyclopedic authority on everything uh, teach them what's useful to them, what's going to help them, and no more. Um, you don't need to be comprehensive about it. Wonderful. Um, tell me about the people who inspire and influence you. Uh, well, I'm going to go back to uh, early days here. Um, back uh, when I was in Sudan, I hadn't been training in fact in Sudan I, I, I was teaching English as a way to travel to mm -hmm. be honest um, it must have been fascinating country uh, to, to work and travel in it certainly was but um, my motivation was, was wasn't the teaching okay. um, and I, when I came back and I, I, I did a, a teacher training course with pilgrims in Canterbury and uh, it was a uh, a real eye-opener because there I realized that um, the actual language teaching part of it could really be um, fascinating in its own right. So it, it, instead of being teaching to travel, I, I could flip that into traveling to teach um, after, after pilgrims. And one of the principal um, characters associated with pilgrims was Mario Rinvalucri. Oh, <laughs> yeah. He wrote books like uh, 
Grammar Games, for mm-hmm. example, mm-hmm. Uh, which is a book I, I was very taken with uh, because it uh, seemed to bring excitement to a topic which, on the face of it, uh, looked very dull and grey. Mm. Um, uh, so uh, Mario Rimbaluka was influenced. Then there were people like uh, Jill Hadfield and Charles Hadfield with mm-hmm. their communication games. Yeah. I really liked... Um, they had these really elaborate um, uh, communication, uh, role-play activities with an extra thing, where, like a secret that you had to discover by, by communicating with others in the classroom. You would uh, work towards discovering a certain secret. I always found those fascinating. And then um, there's Penny Er, mm-hmm. who I was very much influenced by. Um, she, had, she was a combination of uh, imagination but with a very, very strongly practical classroom-centered um, wisdom. Uh, I eventually ha- had the privilege of working with her on a course book, but uh, she was a, an early influence as well. Wonderful. Yes, a- inspirational people. Um, what are your plans for the future? What, what are your personal or life goals? Uh, uh, life goals now... Uh, would it be terrible to say I don't have any? Yes, no. <laughs> That's uh, uh, fantastic. You know that, <laughs> you've heard that expression, um, when you've made it, you've had it. <laughs> if you have a life goal, what happens when you achieve it? Mm. You're just going to have to commit suicide, aren't you? Um, no, <laughs> enjoy it. <laughs> No, you you need to have a um, you need to have something that's going to keep you going, mm. and uh, ongoing projects. I think that's what it's all about. Ongoing projects. So I have a, I have my ongoing projects. I'm working on a book currently um, mm. um, to do with listening, the the overlap between listening and pronunciation. Um, I'm working on paintings. Um, I'm going through a phase now of. Uh, certain approach to paintings which I hadn't taken before so that's I'm working my way through that these kind of things uh, so not a a great big life goal you might say but just little ongoing uh, things that you get involved in. Going back to the overlap between listening and and pronunciation um it's listening is considered or listening is a receptive no (laughs) now I'm confusing myself (laughs) sorry um teaching pronunciation is it a productive it it is it is a productive skill but there is obviously there are clear benefits for um for listening how how are you matching them Uh, well uh, let me um let me put it this way. I mm. think that uh, pronunciation teaching, pronunciation is hybrid, which means it's a uh, crosses between different um, areas. Uh, that's the beauty of it, actually, because uh, it, on the one hand, it's a system like vocabulary and mm. grammar. Pronunciation, it's a system, one mm-hmm. of the three the three main systems, that's so it's that. And at the same time, 
it's uh, skills uh, so it's obviously speaking skills yeah. but um, almost more importantly it's part of the listening skill uh, I say almost more importantly because it's pronunciation it gives you access to listening listening gives you access to pronunciation too it, it becomes <laughs> a, a virtuous circle if you become better at listening you become better at pronunciation if you're better at pronunciation you become better at listening um, so you really want to get that circle moving mm. because that's going to because once that circle starts moving like a wheel then uh, the student starts learning for themselves they become an independent learner and that's what we all want right yep <laughs> definitely wonderful um so yeah obviously clear benefits um by working on this i'd be interested to see what what happens what what comes um a fun fact about you um well fun is in the eye of the beholder isn't it but let me try this one on you um i can draw a map of anywhere in the world from memory <laughs> Really? And it started uh, when I was a child. Um, I, I used to read the Atlas as a hobby. And mm -hmm. uh, when I first went to school, primary school, during the break, I drew a map of Australia on the blackboard. And when the teacher came back into the room, the teacher, she was uh, astonished. And before that, I hadn't realised it was unusual. I thought everybody could do this. <laughs> <laughs> so you can really just any any country in the world well not just countries I, I can do you baffin island or um, you know just places places i can't yeah. do city street maps necessarily but mm -hmm. territories um coastlines rivers mountain ranges borders national borders yeah fascinating fascinating and and you've done this from an early age so in primary school <laughs> yeah do, yeah, do, you, I, do you think there's a link between that and your your inspiration to travel? Oh, certainly, certainly, yes. Um, I, I mean, Sudan was my first destination for work, and uh, I was definitely very interested to see what was in this space that the map was showing. You know, it's a, a an empty quarter of the Sahara Desert that on the map a big yellow area with no roads on it. Uh, yeah, I was very interested in seeing what that was like. <laughs> wow. Do you have a favourite quote? Um, <clears throat> I'm not really big on favourites, but let me, uh, let me try you with something from Wittgenstein. He said, ambition is the death of art. Ambition is the death of art. And I had, what I'm thinking he means here is that uh, you don't create a work of art by setting out to create a work of art. Mm. It beco it, becoming a work of art is a, a side, a byproduct. What you're, it's about intrinsic motivation, isn't it? Mm. I think really great things come of intrinsic motivation. You're interested in something for its own sake. Um, if you become rich and famous as a result, that would be a byproduct. Mm. And uh, coming back to teaching, I think intrinsic motivation is 
the part that interests me most uh, about teaching, trying to make the uh, language and learning of it intrinsically motivating rather than relying on things like, oh, pay attention, this is in the exam, for example, which is uh, it's very tempting at times when you have an undisciplined class mm. to bring out the, uh, the old, uh, oh, pay attention, this is in the exam uh, weapon. Mm -hmm. But uh, if, you can, uh, if you can get intrinsic motivation on your side, you, you're going to get a much more uh, enduring and valuable outcome. Wow, that is wonderful. <laughs> and um, I think uh, that's pretty much all we have time for this morning, Mark. Thank you so much for joining me, joining, and it's been just wonderful talking with you. And I'd love to be one of your students. Um, <laughs> uh, you think I could teach you pronunciation? Is that what you're implying? <laughs> Yes, I, I need some help with, <laughs> with my accent. Yeah, so do I. <laughs> okay. Um, thanks again. And um, I'll, I'll chat with you again soon, I hope. All um, right. Thanks for, for coming. It's very nice meeting you. <laughs> and thank you for all of your wonderful questions. Thank you. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.